Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and foster care. Hey, do us a favor. Please let your friends know about this podcast. Most people find out about podcasts, well, podcasts in general, but also specific podcasts through their friends. And we would really appreciate it if you would let your friends who might be interested in adoption or foster care know about this podcast. Today, we will be talking basic baby care for newly adopted babies with Dr. Scott Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a pediatrician and co-founder of Beverly Hills Pediatric. He is the author of one of my favorite baby care books and one of the ones with the best name called Eat, Sleep, Poop. And he is co-founder of Kids Doctors on Call, which is a telemedicine platform. And perhaps most important, he is a father of two girls, an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. Welcome, Dr. Cohen, to Creating a Family. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to, not surprisingly, I really do love the uh, title of your book, Eat, Sleep, Poop. And so that's going to be the format for our interview today. (laughs) We're going to start with... (laughs) eat. And so we're primarily talking about newly adopted infants. So that's kind of going to be the framework and format that we're using. So the vast majority of adoptive parents will bottle feed their baby. So one of the first questions they will have is, how do they choose a formula? Is there any difference between the types of formula? Is one better than another? How do you even know how to begin? There's so many formulas on the market nowadays. There are, yes. And, you know, the nice thing is that the FDA, you know, monitors them. So they have to have the initial same components. But I always look for one with high levels of omega-3 fatty acids. That's your DHA, which has been shown to help brain development, cognition, visual acuity. And most of them have copied each other. Formulas like the Mead Johnson brand of the Infomel formulas, the Good Start, the Earth's Best. I do think American formulas are excellent. I don't think you have to go abroad for other formulas. You know, a big fad right now is some of the European formulas like Hip and Holly. And what I worry about with formulas that are coming overseas, and there's been articles written about this, is you don't know how they're getting here, where the storage is, and the regulations of the components in them. So I do think going to your local drugstore to get a US-made formula is not a bad idea. And make it easy on yourself. At three in the morning when your child's hungry, you're not going to be wanting to run around town or go on Amazon to find something. Yeah, no, you certainly won't. All right. So you usually have two different formats. You've got the powdered, uh, which you mix, or you could have the cans or the bottles or the jars sure. that are already pre-mixed or, or so wet. So yes. is there a um, is one better than the other? Technically, in components, no. I mean, obviously, for ease, the ready-made parents love. It's obviously mixed by a machine, so it tends to be a little smoother than the powder, which you're mixing and and often can have a little bit of the powder and grittiness. But as far as components, no. For the baby, and babies take either one very well. And I just say, make your life easy, whatever's easier for the parent. The other well, thing it's mention, also cheaper, I would say, the use of the powder. Cheaper. Yeah. I find that a lot of parents start with the ready-made and then realize that as far as volume and price, it's just easier to get the powder. It's easier yeah. to travel with. So I find most parents end up going with the powder. Yeah. And I think people have this idea that the powder is not going to be as good. Now, if you're mixing it with water, obviously, what type of water do you need to use distilled water? Do you need to use bottled water? Can you use just tap water? I'm going to say something horrible. You can use fresh off the tap water. Uh, (laughs) You know, I live in LA. Everybody loves fancy water and bottled water. And if you want to go that route, you absolutely can. But, uh, you know, you can take it right out of the tap. And actually, uh, LA County water is actually very good and is fluoridated as well, which may come in handy when that baby starts getting teeth at six months. But whatever the parent obviously wants to do and feels most comfortable, but tap water is absolutely fine. Is there any worry about the fluoridation in water for an infant? No, no, not too much fluoridation in the water supply. There are varying degrees of fluoridation depending on the state and the city, but there won't be too much. And if their water in a certain area does not have fluoride, the child can get fluoride supplementation or even fluoride varnish from their dentist when they're older. So nothing that the parent has to worry about. Okay, so that's what we put in the bottle, but now let's talk about the bottle itself. There's a lot of different types of formula, but there's even more different types of bottles. And 
So can you kind of, if, is it possible to generalize and lump the bottles into kind of groups of types? And let's talk about the different things, different types of bottles that are avail- available and which one parents either prefer or which one do pediatricians <laughs> prefer? So I like to make things easy for parents. I think parents are overwhelmed and overloaded with information and things. And <laughs> Thank you. We right? are. Yes. Let's, let's just try to make this simple. And if milk comes out of it and the baby can get that milk, the <laughs> bottle is fine. I don't want parents spending a lot of time and a lot of money trying a lot of different bottles. In general, it tends not to make a difference as far as huge amounts of gas or fussiness. But nipple size, I think, is important. And there's some different nipple sizes. You'll see slow flow nipples. You'll see creamy nipples in different levels, level one, two, three. And I think a full-term baby starting right from the get-go can use a regular level one nipple and the parents can pace them a little bit, meaning that if they're tilting the bottle and the baby starts you know, gagging or choking or spinning up, you drop the bottle flow or you pull it out and you slow them down, but they don't need to work harder to get that milk out from a slow flow or a preemie nipple. Level one nipples, babies usually do well. And then a question I get asked a lot is, when do we move up the speed of the nipple? And that really depends on the baby. My daughters had a level one nipple their entire first year. They could take that thing down in five minutes. I tried to get milk out of it. I couldn't do it in an hour. So babies are amazing doing that. But <laughs> they're amazing baby, sucking machines, aren't amazing they? sucking machines. But if they're getting frustrated or it's taking a really long time, you can always move to a faster flow and just pace them initially if, the, if it's too fast. What about the shape of the nipple? There are some nipples that are supposed to more clearly mimic the breast and others that don't go as deep into the baby's mouth. What about that different shapes of nipples? So I think since we're not worrying as much about breastfeeding and we're focusing on bottle, the shape doesn't matter as well. I've never had a baby who couldn't get milk out of any shaped nipple. So I think it tends to be a little more advertising right now, but the babies don't care. Just like a a woman's breast, the baby doesn't really, isn't bothered by the different shapes of breasts and the the look of breasts. They take where the milk is. And I, you know, if there's milk there, the baby's going to get it. I think that's the important thing. And and is there a preference to using a glass over plastic or plastic over glass? And if plastic, what type of plastic? (laughs) So I think the majority of people nowadays use plastic just because it's easier to transport. You don't have to worry about breaking it, things like that. Most of the plastics now they're making are BPA-free, which I think is important. They found that's a chemical that can you know, possibly cause issues. We don't know 100%. But if I had my choice because we're heating that plastic, then you're really looking for a BPA-free plastic. Glass is absolutely fine as well. But again, you know, there's always that risk of breaking it and traveling it. They're heavy. So I think most people use end up using plastic. Okay. And some adoptive parents will face the issue of a baby either born premature or with a baby with neonatal abstinence syndrome, NAS. It's uh, a baby who uh, is born dependent on some type of drug that their uh, mom has, has taken during pregnancy. Does the presence, so let's start with prematurity. Does mm-hmm. prematurity, a baby born, does any of the advice you've given as to the type of formula or type of bottle differ if a baby uh, is premature? Sure. So if the baby is premature or they're smaller in size for whatever reason, they may have feeding issues early on. And so that may be a baby that the doctor in the hospital or their pediatrician does recommend a premature nipple or a slower full nipple just to give them a chance to feed better. Uh, The larger flow just may be too much for them to handle. Feedings also may be more frequent or we may need to increase the calories depending on the size of the baby and we're watching, obviously, their weight gain. So those, okay. those would be the differences. My general rule for babies, I always say two and four answers every feeding question. For the first <laughs> two to four months of a child's life, they typically take about two to four ounces of formula or breast milk, and they feed about every two to four hours around the clock, unfortunately. We get them sleeping yeah. through the night by four months. But those general rules, and you know, look, we're not robots. Sometimes you take a little less, sometimes you take a little more. And if you start off premature or smaller, you're not going to be taking two ounces from the get-go. You're going to be working up to that volume. 
the nice thing about the bottle, it's there if the baby wants it. So when they're done, there's nothing you can do to make them take more. But if they want it, give it to them. We never limit the volume in the bottle. They will truly stop when they're done. They won't overfeed at a given feeding. Oh, okay. So you don't need to worry that the baby is going to overfeed just when they're no longer consuming, they're done. Exactly. And one feeding, they may take four ounces and another feeding, they make two. And the two ounce feed wasn't a bad feed. It's just a different feed. And we all sort of vary. The nice thing about, again, the bottles is we tend not to worry as much about weight gain because we know the supply is there. And if the supply is there and it's offered and the baby can get it, healthy babies gain weight. Okay. Now let's go back to babies who may have been born dependent or been diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Anything special with those kiddos? Well, I think some of the same issues, you know, that baby may have symptoms. They may stay in the hospital longer. Symptoms of neonatal abstinence syndrome, which basically they're withdrawing from a drug that the mother was on. Could be anything from tremors to irritability to, you know, change in muscle tone or, you know, stuffy nose. So this could just be affecting feeding or poor feeding. And sometimes it's just a matter of timing that you have to wait and you just have to be slower with these things. But these babies definitely have to be monitored closer for their feeding and their weight gain. Okay. And I know that specialized formulas exist. Mm -hmm. uh, And there are certainly parents who think, gosh, you know, I should just start my child off on a specialized formula, you know, a lactose-free or a soy or or some type of formula just to prevent potential problems. How do we know, first of all, what type of specialized formulas exist? And number two, how do you know if your child needs it or should you just do it prophylactically to be careful, just to be on the safe side? So I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, again, it goes to there's so many different formulas and types of formulas. So if we think about the classifications, most formulas are cow's milk protein-based formulas. Mm -hmm. Breast milk is breast milk protein and then, or human milk protein, and then the main class of formulas are your cow's milk protein. There's also soy. So that's obviously a soy-based protein. And then there's more broken down formulas for babies that may have irritability, fussiness with feeding or allergies. There's in-betweens like Gentle Ease, which is made by Mead Johnson or Good Start. And that's like a partially broken down cow's milk formula. And then there's truly hypogenic, hypoallergenic formulas, something called like Nutramagen or Alimentum, where they take that cow's milk protein, they break it down, they wash it so it's more easily digested by the baby. So in general, we start a baby without any history or any strong family history of allergies on a regular cow's milk protein formula. And that is all the ones you see in the supermarket. Those are your general formulas. Babies tend to handle it very, very well. If we see symptoms of a possible allergy, symptoms could show up as, imagine you're eating something and it disagrees with your stomach. You're thirsty, you drink a little bit, but oh God, that hurts. So you push the bottle away. But I'm thirsty, so you drink a little bit and push it away. That's the history I hear from parents. Feedings are very difficult. The baby goes back and forth between drinking and crying and fussy and gassy. Then we change the formula. If the symptoms are mild, we may try an intermediate, one of those partially broken down formulas, because we're saying they probably don't have a true allergy. Maybe they're just a little sensitive and they're going to outgrow it. But if the kid who's extremely fussy, feedings are miserable, maybe not gaining weight, maybe having blood in their stools, that's the baby we move right to a hypoallergenic formula because you don't want to wait to see if things get better slowly. You want to fix it right away. And then that child stays on the hypoallergenic formula, usually through the first year. The good news about milk protein allergies, babies outgrow them. And pretty much all babies outgrow this by a year, if not much sooner. And by the time we're starting food around six months of age, we're offering dairy foods and trying those things to see if they're better. So the nice thing is it tends to be transient in the first year and we have lots of options. The key that parents need to do with their pediatrician is you don't want to keep just changing formulas just to change formulas because then you never know, is it really causing a problem? You want a plan of action. Here's the symptoms we're seeing. We're going to try something new. It takes three or four days to get the old protein out of their system. So you want to do the new formula for three to four days, see if it improves it, have a discussion and move from there. You don't want to, every time the baby is a little gassy, change it because then how do you know what's going on? Yeah. Okay. That makes good sense. All right, so we have other feeding options as adoptive parents. One, an adoptive mom can try to induce lactation 
to be able to breastfeed the baby. Or adoptive moms will sometimes use donated breast milk. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on either of those options? No, I mean, I, I think they're both good options. The one thing we should educate parents on with the donor breast milk is that one of the big advantages we always talk about with breast milk over formula is the immune benefits, right? Mm -hmm. You're getting the antibodies from the mother producing the breast milk and passing that on to the babies. A lot of the other benefits of breast milk have been mitigated with the new formulas formulations, you know, adding the omega-3 fatty acids, adding some of those extra nutrients in, which has been great in the last, you know, decade, closing the gap. When you do donor breast milk, because they have to basically clear it of any infections, sort of like you would if you donated blood and you heat pasteurize this, you actually kill the immune benefits. So, to be honest, if I, you know, a lot of people start off with donor breast milk and honestly find it very hard. You know, it's very costly. They have to, you know, ship it. It's very difficult on both ends and it's really stressful. And they say, you know what, can we just do formula? And I absolutely think that is as good an option, especially because we're losing the immune benefits, which is one of the biggest benefits. So I think, again, it comes down to the parents feeling comfortable, but I think formula is an absolutely good option. I think their child will still go to Stanford or Harvard or wherever <laughs> else they want to go to college. And yeah, um, there you go. Yeah, right? Yeah, I'm kind of thinking if you think the formula is going to be what gets your kid into Harvard, <laughs> good <laughs> luck. Um, well, you know, right. I said, you know, I was, I was breastfed from day one. My wife was formula fed from day one. Most of them, one of the most amazing, intelligent women you've ever seen. I was breastfed from day one and look what you're getting. So, you know, there, yeah, there you have it. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, and I've had, uh, I can't see much difference between my bottle fed and breastfed babies either. So there, there right. you have it. All right, so how do you know, and you may have already answered this, but how do you know if your baby is getting enough food? I mean, that's, I think, what every parent worries about. Sure. There's two ways. I mean, one is just watching your baby's cues. Babies will take good volume and be very satiated. And if they're taking anywhere in that two to four ounce range, every two to four hours, they're getting the volume they need. But that has to be coupled with routine visits to their pediatrician and we do weight checks. So we see babies every two months. I see them after birth. Every day they're in the hospital, two weeks of age, and typically every two months for the first year of life. So there's a lot of visits and we're tracking their weight, their height, their head size, and watching that growth percentiles don't mean as much. So parents are always excited when their baby's height is 90th percentile. Are they going to be a future basketball player and seven feet tall? Nope. Their, their baby's future height and weight have more to do with their current height and weight up until the age of three. So that doesn't mean as much, but we just want to see that they're following along whatever percentile they're on. So if they're smaller on the 30th percentile, they're sort of staying along the 30th percentile or alternatively the 90th percentile. Mm -hmm. We also can tell just, you know, asking parents questions. Parents will tell you, yeah, the baby takes bottles, they're happy and they feed, eat, sleep, poop, right? And that sort of tells you a baby who's not getting enough tends to push the bottle away, tends to be very fussy after the bottle. And then you see it in their weight gain as well. Also, wouldn't you be looking to see how many wet diapers? I mean, your baby should be having and wet and, and messy diapers, you know, poop, poopy diapers and messy and uh, and PE diapers. How many, is that another uh, way if your baby is point. peeing and pooping, yeah. um, chances are pretty good they're getting enough. Absolutely. And, and really the urine output is the marker of good hydration. Pooping, interestingly, can really vary. So babies poop could poop 10 times a day in those first couple of weeks, but then it can really slow down. It could be once or twice a day or once or twice a week. And that's actually very normal. So parents shouldn't be concerned if their baby skips days with pooping. As long as they're peeing, then you know they're staying hydrated. And the other thing is with bottles, again, it's nice. Unlike the breast, you have a visual, you know the milk's being taken. So that's a good sign as well. Okay, excellent. And if your baby spit, I mean, babies spit up. Uh -huh. um, and so if your baby is spitting up, a lot of parents worry, well, you know, if she's spitting up so much, you know, she's not getting that. This is not supposed to be, I mean, it's supposed to be going into her body and then she's spitting yeah. it up. So should you, at what point should you worry that your kid's spitting up so much that they're not getting the nutrition they need? So surprisingly, even babies that spit up 10 times a day after every feeding, if they're what we call, I call them happy spitters. Yep. Um, I had tends, one. <laughs> yeah. 
it tends not to surprisingly affect weight, even though sometimes it looks like an exorcism and there's more on the floor than when in the bottle. So really we judge it on one, monitoring their weight gain, but two, mainly symptoms. So babies who take their bottles and with the burp, they spit up but they're happy otherwise and they're gaining weight, we don't worry. Babies who spit up and they're very fussy, they're arching, they're screaming, that could be a sign of reflux that we want to look more into and treat. Reflux actually in babies is extremely common because their GI tract is not strong to hold things down. The plumbing isn't great, so things tend to come up a lot. But most babies, they spit up, they, you know, they're happy, they're gaining weight, not an issue. And that's two-thirds of babies. One-third will have what we call painful spit-up, painful reflux. And those are the babies we consider other treatment options for reflux. Okay. So the happy spitter-uppers are usually just going to be fine. And the other ones, the children who might have reflux, it's less of an issue of not getting food and getting nutrition and more of an issue that there's something wrong and they're in pain. They're in pain, exactly. It's funny, even the worst refluxers often are gaining weight okay. It's usually the pain we're treating more than anything. Yes, it's possible they're not gaining weight as well, but surprisingly, the majority of babies who spit up and spit up a lot are gaining weight absolutely fine. All right, let me remind everyone that this show is brought to you by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. They have been underwriting a show for a number of years, and their mission is to strengthen adoptive families through post-adoption services. And one way they do that is through their free backpack program, which provides newly adopted children with their own personalized backpack. It has their initials on it. Inside, they have a stuffed bear and a blanket and a tote bag with parenting resources. This backpack would make a great diaper bag. So for those of you who are adopting babies, you also are eligible for this backpack. What you need to do is your adoption agency or adoption attorney needs to sign up at the jockeybeingfamily.com website. It's free to your agency or attorney. It is free to you, but you do have to, your agency or attorney has to sign up. So you just need to tell them to pop over there that you would like to be able to get your child a free personalized backpack. All right, so now we've talked about eating. It's time to move on to the number one boogaboo of all new parents, sleep. Yes, so I mean, you know, as soon as you bring a baby home, the first question people will be asking is, how many times a night? <laughs> so is that baby getting up? So what is the typical weight sleep pattern for a newborn? So typically they are up and feeding every two to four hours around the clock. Mm. Um, typically that, that's the schedule. And definitely in the first couple of weeks, we ask parents not to let the baby sleep more than four hours at any time because they're just learning to feed. They're just increasing their volumes. And we want to make sure they regain their birth weight. And that can take, even with bottle-fed babies, up to two weeks is when we should see that milestone of regaining their birth weight. Once we see that they're regaining their birth weight, they're taking good volumes and gaining weight, I like to tell parents, no waking a sleeping baby. At night. So during the day, at, during the day, we never want babies to sleep four more hours for obvious reasons. If they're sleeping longer stretches during the day, guess who's going to be up more at night? But at night, I like parents to pick the feeding that naturally falls between 7 and 9 p.m. and make that feeding different. Bath if it's bath night, pajamas, lights out, feeding and down to bed. So that child sees this is day, this is night, and that feeding separates it. So hopefully they get in the the idea of there's something new that should be happening, which is hopefully sleeping longer. <laughs> and hopefully that baby does give the parents a longer stretch. And again, babies will wake up when they're hungry. So a healthy baby that's gaining weight, if they're sleeping longer stretches at night, your pediatrician gave the okay, of course, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And then by four months, if the baby is not sleeping longer stretches, we can help train them to hopefully go a 10-hour stretch or sleep through the night, which all parents are like, woohoo, yay, let's yeah. make that happen. What about the uh, idea of what we called in our house, topping them off? When we would go to bed at 10 or 11, we, I would go in and feed the baby or my husband would go in and feed the baby. Yeah. And uh, with the idea that we would top them off <laughs> and maybe, just maybe get some more sleep. Is that, uh, yeah. Does that work? 
Well, you know, people do what's called, I think what you're describing is a dream feed. So the baby's sort of sleeping, but the parents aren't asleep yet. So they go and give some volume. Yeah, that may push them another three or four hours from that point. It won't necessarily push them the whole night. And especially with bottle fed babies, since they're always getting the volume they need, you know, typically they can do a really good three to four hour stretch, but the top off doesn't necessarily make it go longer. It just makes it go longer from that point in time. Yeah, but that's all I care about because yeah, I'm exactly, going to sleep. Right? Yeah, yeah no, no offense, but I'm, this is all about me. That's all I care about exactly. at that point. Right. But then if we're going to sleep train, I tend to get rid of that dream feed either way because I'm the goal is to get that baby to go a 10-hour stretch from that last feeding. So if that last feeding falls in that 7 to 9 p.m., time period, we're getting them to go from eight to six or seven to five, you know, somewhere in that range, which is life-changing rather than waking up once or twice a night. Oh, definitely. We'll circle back to yep. talk about sleep training here in just a minute. All right. So roughly, when would you be expecting your baby to sleep five to six hours? It really varies. Typically between two and four months of age, those nighttime stretches start to get longer. So you cross your fingers and you hope you get one longer four to six hour stretch, but then they tend to cluster early morning for you like every two hours. And then really at four months is where we expect to get much longer stretches. Gotcha. Okay. And just, this seems seems obvious, but the reality is if your baby is going down for what is their nighttime at nine, you should be doing that as well, (laughs) at least for the first couple of months to try to maximize that your greatest sleep is going to be when their greatest sleep is. Yeah, you need to sleep when your baby sleeps. Good point. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Does the sleep-wake cycle, is it impacted by the neonatal abstinence syndrome, NAS? Yes, absolutely. I mean, your sleep cycle can be totally off and babies can be more irritable and fussy and their sleep cycle can be off as well. So again, sometimes it's a matter of timing. Sometimes, you know, you're finding soothing ways, but a lot of times it's waiting, obviously, until the drugs are out of the baby system. Yeah, which is real, it takes a relatively short period of time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, okay, now to talk about what you're calling sleep training. It would get also call it, you know, introduce establishing healthy sleep habits. Yes. So what is your approach on, first of all, when you should even be considering this? And second, how do you do it? So I am a big advocate of sleep training. I think most parents are as well, but I will tell you as a parent, it is not easy. If you look at all sleep training books out there, whether they have nice names, no cry, or bad names like Ferber, let them cry very similar and they're on a spectrum in that you're basically teaching your child how to self-soothe. And the reason we do this starting around four months is because prior to four months, you can't spoil your child. If they cry, you want to fix it. They're learning from your, you know, fixing the, the issue. You're changing the diaper, you're picking them up, you're soothing them. But at four months, they can start learning to self-soothe, which is the idea of waking up crying, looking around the room and saying, you know what? I'm actually not hungry. I'm going to put myself back to sleep. The other thing we know at four months of age is that starting at that point, a baby doesn't need to feed nutritiously in that 10-hour period at night. So any feedings that are happening are really comfort feedings. They don't need them to gain weight and grow. So for those two reasons, starting at four months is a safe time, you know, again, if the baby's been growing and healthy to start sleep training. So what we usually talk to parents about is I define what I call my bookends, which are my 10 hours. So if their bedtime's been around, let's say, for argument's sake, around 8 o'clock, we say your bookends are 8 p.m. to 6 a.m., and that is our goal. If your baby sleeps longer, wonderful. If you have a 12-hour sleeper, you would brag about it like everybody else. You can't necessarily force it, though, but the goal is 10. So basically, we're going to say from 8 to 6, and this is very difficult, we're going to do the two things that have taught your baby to wake up. We're not going to pick them up and we're not going to feed them because those are the two things that are reinforcing them waking up and crying for you. Now, how are you going to do that? It's difficult. You're going to go in and you're going to check on them. You can touch them. You can talk to them, but you want to spend a minimal amount of time in the room and you want to maximize your response time to them. So it's taking longer and longer for you to respond So the baby's saying, wait a second, mommy's not coming in as much, daddy's not coming in as much, and I'm not hungry, I'm going to put myself back to sleep. So I use sort of a, 
a modified Ferber method, and I call it the 5, 10, 15. So if they go down at 8 o'clock and they start crying at midnight, you're going to wait five minutes before you go in there. You're going to go in, and you're really, it's more for you than them. You're going to make sure they're not hurt, they're not sick, they're not stuck. If there's a problem, of course you want to fix it. Usually there's not. You can touch them, mommy and daddy love you, and then you're out of there very likely when you leave that room, they're still crying because you didn't do the two things they wanted you to do, pick them up and feed them. So if they're still crying, now you're going to wait 10 minutes before you go in there, touch, talk, leave. If they're still crying, 15 minutes. And then I sort of wait at 15. Every time you leave that room and they're still crying, you're going to wait 15 minutes before you go back in there. If they fall asleep, they wake up in the morning, you're going to keep it 15, 15, 15, until they fall asleep. And then anytime after 6 a.m. that they cry, it's been 10 hours, now you should pick them up and feed them and go on with the day. The next night, instead of 5, 10, 15, 15, 15, I up it to 10, 15, 20, 20, 20. The next night, 15, 20, 25, 25, 25. The point is, the intervals don't matter. It's just easy to remember 5, 10, 15. And I know if you can start that, which as a parent is difficult but doable, it takes two or three rough nights. And then by the third or fourth night, honestly, they're sleeping through the night. Mm-hmm. But listen, my wife and I did this. We fought all night. We aborted <laughs> it the first couple nights. It did not go well. And then by the third night, we got into a, a rhythm and, and my daughter's been a great sleeper ever since. So it does work as a parent emotionally. It is not easy, but I can promise you two things. You are not emotionally damaging them by letting them cry a little bit and you are not starving them. You're actually doing something much more important developmentally. You're teaching them how to self-soothe and problem solve where when they looked at infants who were slept trained and extrapolated that data, those kids actually did better later on in some development, self-soothing and problem-solving tests than kids that weren't. So I actually think it's a, it's a really good thing. If you choose not to do it, it's absolutely fine. You can do it at any time, but parents love it if it works. You know, the other thing I would throw in there is that during the period to sleep training, the first four months, and this is particularly easy if the baby is bottle fed, it's to switch off every other night if you're partnered and let, and even if you're not partnered, to get your mom to come over once or twice a week or, or a friend, a very good friend, to uh, come over and handle the night so that every, if you're partnered every other night and if you're single, you know, at least twice a week or three times a week, you're getting, you know, you will get sleep. And to do that, you've got to move to another, or at least for me, it simply never worked. If I could possibly hear the baby, I would. So I had to um, sleep in a different room, with a lot of closed doors and earplugs. And that way you're not, uh, at least, you know, every other night or every uh, couple of nights, you're going, and, and the same with sleep training, because it is hard. <laughs> and uh, it's hard for where it was for me to go back to sleep. Yeah. Uh, and so I was being like, well, darn, I'm, you know, I'm already awake. Uh, I might as well go in there, you know, because, you know, now I'm wide awake and I'm worrying. And so anyway, that's a, a hint from the been there, done that crowd. Yeah. Parents have to take care of themselves. Happy parents, happy babies. Yeah. You're exactly right. And think of it as, you know, it may seem difficult for a couple nights, but long-term gain. Big yeah, long term. For sure. Um, a lot of parents are tempted because they will, uh, they will hear from their parents or from friends that if they will introduce solid foods, even like watered down or, or you know, uh, like the rice cereal that's with a lot of formula. So put a little rice, yep. put a little rice cereal in that bottle help the baby sleep through the night. And I'm going to fess up that uh, when I month old or she was probably five months old, had started waking up again. All my friends were like, you just got to give her some rice cereal and she will sleep through the night. And I tried it. So anyway, tell me about, um, so does did, that so did it work? It actually didn't, but I, you yeah. know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I would agree with that. I, I don't find it works. There's a couple things, you know, Yes, adding a little rice cereal or food may make them a little fuller, but it's not the difference between sleeping three hours and 10 hours. It may be the difference between three and four hours. It also is adding passive calories the baby doesn't need. And when we're offering food, we want to teach them something as well, which we'll talk about. We, we teach them how to use a spoon. We teach them oral motor coordination. We don't want to just put it in a bottle where they suck it down. So for nutritious reasons and the fact that it doesn't help a baby necessarily sleep through the night, I don't recommend it. 
Okay, so it, it doesn't work and it's not particularly effective. Okay. Yeah. All right, okay. so I just thought I would mention it because I guarantee <laughs> they're going to hear it. Right. All right, so is the recommendation still sleeping on the back? No pillows, no blankets, no bumpers, no stuffed animals, kind of that, that approach? Yeah, 100%, yes. Because of SIDS, was the sudden infant death syndrome, which we've decreased dramatically since the back to sleep campaign, which is basically putting all babies to sleep on their back, that is the safest position. So we want to make sure they're on a firm surface. There's no bumpers, no pillows, no blankets, nothing that could go over the head. We want to make sure that they're sleeping on their back until they can roll over on their own. The majority of SIDS, it peaks between two and four months. About 80% is before six months of age. Then it really drops off because the they can lift their head better. They can roll over more. Uh, neurologically, they're more advanced. But we definitely want to do back to sleep, sleeping no matter what. And as far as a baby in the parent's bed, I know that there are a lot of a difference, uh, differences of opinion there. But what is yours? We really don't want to do that. I mean, it is not safe. And all parents, you know, we're well-intentioned and, you know, sometimes it feels easier, but there is a huge risk. You know, as a parent, you're already overtired. God forbid you roll over. There's a suffocation risk with pillows and your body. So we heavily... It's a big no-no. Co-sleeping with the baby, which means the baby is in your room, but in their own device, whether it's a bassinet or a crib, is absolutely fine. And that actually may decrease SIDS um, because they hear the breathing going on in the room, but we do not want them in bed with you. All right. This show is underwritten by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation, but it is also supported by our partner agencies. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information, both pre and post adoption or fostering. One such partner is Adoptions from the Heart. They have helped build over 6,000 families since 1985 to domestic infant adoption. They work with people all across the U.S and are licensed in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Virginia, and Connecticut. We also have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. Now they have home study only services and they also have a full service infant adoption program as well as international and a foster to adopt program. So both of those are partners who put their money where their values are, and we really appreciate it. All right, we have talked about eating and sleeping, and now it's time to talk about pooping. So how often are, are babies supposed to poo? So initially, they may not poop a lot. They, you know, when you're first born, you're producing meconium. Meconium is a black tarry looking poop. And then as they're taking more volume, they're pushing out that poop and it's turning into a transitional green color. And then what we typically think of baby poop, that yellow mustard seedy poop. Once they're taking, you know, within the first couple of days, the poops increase in volume and frequency greatly. A baby may poop 10 to 12 times a day. And that's absolutely normal. Not uncommon for parents to say, wow, every time they feed, we see a little poop or smear in the diaper. So there's a lot of diaper changes. But after two weeks of age, as we mentioned, the pooping may stay very frequent or could slow down and both are equally normal. Okay. And yeah, I, I will say that I had uh, with my first child, she went a, almost a week one time and I absolutely panicked, but the pediatrician wasn't overly worried. So, and she's probably thrilled that I just mentioned this on air. Right. Um, so, so you said that a typical baby poo is kind of a, a yellowish cup color. Mm -hmm. This could fall under the TMI category, but uh, bottle fed baby, will it still be kind of a yellowish color or is it going to be more of a brown? Is that the, the normal color? To, or does color even matter? Should you worry about it? So th that's a good point. So it shouldn't matter. So we spend so much time looking at poop. Any little changes, parents get concerned. It turned green, it's peanut butter, it's, you know, consistency, it's watery. So I always say there's four things that I'm concerned about with poop. Everything else should be ignored. There are three colors it should never be. It should never be tarry like the meconium after the meconium disappears. It should never be, never have red blood in it, of course, and it should never be plain white. White, perfectly white could be a sign of a, a liver issue. Extremely, extremely rare. Any other color, yellows, greens, browns, blue, if they ate a blue crayon, um, uh. 
<laughs> but any other color is not concerning. And any consistency from watery to soft serve ice cream to peanut butter to Play-Doh, I don't know why we name it after foods. Um, I don't know either, normal, yeah. <laughs> right? Are all normal as well, but it shouldn't be a hard rock. So parents are always worried, as you probably were with your constipation. Constipation is defined by consistency, not frequency. So a baby who poops once a week, but it comes out soft is absolutely normal. A baby who poops every day, but it's a hard rock, they're constipated. And you know, babies tend not to get constipated. So you're looking for that hard rock. Babies turn red and grunt and strain every time they poop. And it doesn't mean they're constipated. It doesn't even mean they're in pain. They just don't know how to get it out. Trying different muscles, and then it finally comes out and it's a blowout and it's normal. Okay. So, three colors to worry about. Other than that, any other color of the rainbow is okay. I'm not worried. Yep. And any consistency other than hard rock is yep. okay. Yes. And I agree with you. Let us avoid the, uh, the food analogies when we're talking about our kids' poop. <laughs> All right. So, how do you know if there is a problem? You're saying that grunting is not a, you know, a, a problem. What about a child who seems to be crying when they're have, trying to have, pass a bowel movement? Yeah, I think crying or basically straining with crying or pain could be a sign they're having difficulty. The consistency of the poop, if it is a hard rock, is a concern. Or obviously, if there's blood in the stool, that would be a concern. But you know, a little grunting and pushing, and then the poop comes out and they're gaining weight, that's a good sign. Another sign may be you know, their belly is very distended and seems like they're in pain. But I, I caution even saying that because babies do tend to look like they always have bellies, Buddha bellies, and that's an absolutely normal thing. So I really go, like you said, on their demeanor more than anything else. So the only way to know if your child is constipated is by the consistency of the, not so much frequency, but the consistency of their poo, where they're really, it's, it's hard and pebble-like. Yeah, and, and painful. Mm-hmm. And painful. So what should you do if your child is displaying uh, constipation? So it really depends on the age. So constipation in the newborn period is not common. So if there was true constipation, which again, we don't see a lot of, it really needs to be investigated by a pediatrician to make sure there's nothing anatomically going on. Constipation as they get older, you know, we can try simple dietary things like, you know, and we're talking when they're, you know, six months old, you know, a little prune juice in the bottle. Prune juice works better than any laxative, you know, a little water. And then there are, you know, stool softening agents that we can use under a year of age, things like uh, milk of magnesia and Marilax, but this would be that they're really having a lot of trouble. We try dietary things first. A baby who is starting solids often gets a little constipated, and I always try to do dietary things first. I always say pea fruits help you poop. So prunes, pears, plums, peaches, apricots, second letter, close enough. And I add more of those in the diet. I hold off on the more constipating starchy foods and add water, and usually those dietary things really help. Okay. So what type of diaper is the best? There's a lot of varieties, actually not that many really, but you've got disposable, you've got cloth, and other disposables you usually have a couple of different types. And quite frankly, for cloth, you've got a couple of different types too. So what type of diaper is best? I think it really comes down to a personal preference. I mean, personally, we use disposable. I thought it was very easy you know, quick on, quick off. We didn't have to worry about washing. I know they have services now that make it easier for parents to send the cloth diapers to. I think that when they looked at environmental resources, thinking that cloth is, you know, better for the environment, I think when they looked and saw, you know, the amount of water used for washing and things like that, they were pretty close. I really think it comes down to a personal preference. And then as far as type, You know, it's up to the parent what cute design they want on the diaper. I think my girls use Pampers, but I think there's so many brands out there. And if it holds in the poop and pee, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, um, it's been a while now, but a long time ago, I did the research. And if you use a diaper service, it's kind of arguable whether there's an environmental benefit. But if you wash your own, I think there clearly is. Yeah. But if you're using a diaper service, and, and this is old information, so it may be different now. Okay, so let's talk about diaper rash, another thing that parents worry about and is certainly uncomfortable for babies. 
what qualifies, first of all, as a diaper rash? Any redness in the diaper area. I mean, babies poop and pee so often, and obviously you can be parent of the year, the baby's going to be in it. You can't, you know, avoid that poop and pee is going to come in contact with their skin. So because of the contact with the skin and the irritation, it turns the area around the butt and the penis and the vagina, anywhere in that diaper area red, and that usually constitutes diaper rash. And an easy fix is any type of diaper creams. You know, usually those thick white creams, there's Desitin and Bomex and A&D and Aquaphor, you name it. And what you're doing really is just creating a barrier so that that raw red skin can heal as they're pooping and peeing more. And that's really the key of plain old diaper rash. Now, some kids get a secondary yeast infection, which sounds horrible. Oh my God, how did my baby get a yeast infection? It's probably the second most common rash we see in babies. Any moist environment grows yeast. And sort of the hallmark of this is that when you start seeing those that redness in the creases of the skin, like their folds or little red dots around the periphery, that typically is yeast. And then there's different over-the-counter yeast creams that we can use to take care of that. Mm-hmm. And the yeast usually, or my experience is that the yeast rashes looked angrier. They were you know, not a gentle red. They they seemed, they looked like they would be more uncomfortable. They can be. And when you think about it, you know, diaper rash, what's the mechanism? It's the contact of that diaper with the skin. So that rash is usually the areas that touch the diaper, not inside the creases. When it's inside the creases, you have to sort of think what crawled in there. And that's usually the yeast. Gotcha. Okay. And do they still recommend babies go without a diaper, lay them in the sun, let them get some, uh, let them in a, a bright window and let them get uh, sun on their, on their little hineys to help it clear up? Or is that old fashioned? No, I mean, I think you could do that. I think that's very difficult because anytime you have a diaper off a baby, they end up pooping and peeing on something. So <laughs> I just think logistically it's hard. And I think you could just put diaper cream and keep their diaper on and it will work well. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this is not necessarily uh, pooping related, but I did want to talk about colic. Uh, We hear a lot about colic and it seems to be a mechanism that was not well understood. So first of all, tell us what colic is and when we usually see it at what age. Sure. So colic is sort of this indescribable fussiness that babies have. They sort of call it the rule of three. So it starts around three weeks of age to about three months of age. Thankfully, kids outgrow it. It can be fussy crying for up to three hours, usually around early evening time for at least three nights a week. But you know, any basically indescribable fussiness that a baby has usually in the evening time. And you're exactly right. We don't know exactly what causes colic. It's not that I can say, do this and colic goes away. It's been hypothesized, is there GI upset? But they've looked into that. Not everybody has it. Is it a certain bacteria that's in the baby's stomach? Well, not 100% of the time. So the key is that if your baby has colic, know a couple things. Know that it's going to get better and you know, it does, but it can be very trying. And we try soothing measures first, you know, swaddling the baby, shushing the baby, rocking them gently. You can try different, you know, white noise. People try going where the dryer is, you know, it just depends on what sounds the baby likes. We also try homeopathic things because they're not medically proven, but they're safe. You know, things like chamomile tea and colic drops and tabs, which have mixtures, you know, fennel and chamomile because they can't hurt and maybe they'll help. Probiotics have actually only been the only medical thing that's been shown to decrease colic and fussiness. So I'm a big fan of baby probiotics for babies. And then, you know, I think the biggest thing for parents is to take a deep breath and know that it's going to get better. Sometimes they just have to hand the baby off to somebody else, mm-hmm. like you said, and go into another room and, and get mm-hmm. some downtime. But when a pediatrician sees colic, we want to obviously make sure that there aren't other reasons the baby's fussy, like we mentioned before, like reflux or something's bothering them. But typically, the babies that are gaining weight, healthy, happy all day long, and then sort of have what we call that witching hour at night, mm-hmm. that's colic. Yep, I had one with colic. And, and actually, for me, it really did help to know that this is going to be relatively short term, that if he was really uncomfortable, I mean, yes, he, he isn't happy, but there's nothing that I can do that's going to be making it any better. So cuddling him and it just somehow took some of the sting away that I didn't feel like I, that I was responsible for solving the problem. I just need to be there with him. And yep. um, 
And eventually, fortunately, he his was didn't last the full three months. So thank goodness. Okay. Yeah. All right. And I thought we would save one of the more controversial things to the end, and that is, what is the current thinking on circumcision? I talk about if you want to see any parent group explode, uh, <laughs> introduce the idea of circum or just the, con- sure. the the topic of circumcision, and people have very strong opinions. So yeah. Well, what's the so, current thinking? You know, uh, what I tell parents is whatever you decide, I'll, I'll help you take care of it. <laughs> but yeah. that's a weenie out. Come on. I oh, know, I know. There. So <laughs> the pediatric community, you're right, has gone back and forth with this. You know, over a decade ago, everybody should be circumcised. Then it flipped to, you know, parent choice. And now it's moving back toward that it's recommended to do. And, and the reason is the studies are sort of six of one half dozen of the other. So a circumcised baby has decreased risk of urinary tract infections, but urinary tract infections tend to be you know, easily treatable in babies, so they call it a wash. Circumcision decreases the risk of penile cancer, but penile cancer is extremely rare, so they call it a wash. Circumcision decreases the risk of sexually transmitted diseases like HIV, but not necessarily others, so they call it a wash. And then the chance of getting a circumcision and needing a revision or having an uncircumcised penis and needing to be circumcised surgically is also a wash. So that's why they've sort of gone back and forth, though I still think those things that we're calling a wash are still a positive toward being circumcised. So that's why the recommendation is there. I think if I had a, a son, but I only make girls, you know, <laughs> I would choose to circumcise him for non-religious reasons. But I do really believe it's choice. They should be do what they feel comfortable with. And yes, I will tell them how to take care of it. Gotcha. Okay. And, and I think the, just, just to point out, the thing that's not a wash is the complications from circumcision, which is also relatively rare, yeah. but non-existent. So yeah. So I mean, those are the, that's the, so there you have it. All the things you need to uh, think about to figure out what's the best thing for your kiddo. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Dr. Scott Cohen, author of Eat, Sleep, Poop. Let me remind everyone that the information presented in this show is the opinion of the guests, not necessarily the opinion of creating a family, our partners, are our underwriters. And keep in mind that the information given is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption professional or in this case, your pediatrician. Thank you, everyone, and I will see you again next week.